This is Play by Playcast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play by play guys. For play by play guys, by I'm told, a play by play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now, here's the host of Play by Playcast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay. Here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Welcome back into another edition of The Pod, everybody. This is Play by Playcast. My name is Joel Godet. It's the podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. Uh, if you'd like to interact with us, as always, you can find us on Twitter. We are at PXPCast, or I am at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. You can keep those interactions from last week coming as well. If you have any uh, comments from last week's pod, we put out on Twitter our episode with Mick Gillespie of the Tennessee Smokies. He had talked about broadcasting superpowers and what your broadcasting superpower is um, or, or what various people's broadcasting superpowers are. And that could be anything ranging from uh, ability to storytell or use of their voice or knowledge of the game, etc. Got some good responses, uh, including ability to forget numbers on the roster from the previous week's game. Uh, so if you've got any broadcast superpowers, keep those coming our way. It'll be interesting to see uh, what people's different ideas are that they come up with. Um, in the meantime... I don't want to have too much of a long intro today because it's a long episode in general. This week's guest from ESPN is Kevin Brown, formerly of the Syracuse Chiefs, AAA baseball affiliate of the Washington Nationals. Uh, Kevin has been there since 2011 when he graduated from Syracuse and went to work for Jason Benetti and uh, worked as his number two for five Four, four or five years until um, Jason departed Syracuse and Kevin took over and then worked about two and a half years, uh, three full seasons, and he left in, in late July this year um, as the voice of the Chiefs to, to take his full-time job at ESPN. And uh, it's a fun conversation. We cover a wide range of topics uh, related to broadcasting and not. We start way off topic. Um, so so uh, word of warning there. If, if you're not a big fan of the musical Hamilton, you might want to fast forward through the first couple of minutes of the podcast. But uh, it all kind of comes together because Kevin is a guy that has an insane amount of creativity. And that shows both in his on-air work, but also the stuff he's done in his career around his on-air work. And kind of the, the YouTube video ideas and things that uh, he and Jason did while they were with the Syracuse Chiefs. And I think that kind of permeates into their broadcasting as well. The way they talk, uh, the things that they reference, and the, the references that they can make, and kind of the inside jokes you can make. Uh, but the way you can make a broadcast more interesting, more colorful, um, I, I think is something that uh, we talked about broadcasting superpowers, uh, something that Kevin... Um, really excels at, and he's going to talk about that a lot on the pod. But we'll get into preparation. We'll get into what it's like uh, being part of an ESPN broadcast team. We'll get into Kevin running a 40-yard dash on television against one of the nation's uh, best high school uh, speedsters on the on the football gridiron. Uh, we'll talk some baseball as well and what it was like when he made his Major League debut this summer for the Washington Nationals also. Pretty wide-ranging conversation with Kevin Brown, uh, and again, it's a long one, so we'll jump right into it. KB joins us this week on Play by Playcast. How was Hamilton? Can we start there? 
Oh, yeah, we can start there. So I had a glorious week because I saw Hamilton on Tuesday of last week as we record this, and then I saw Dear Evan Hansen on Wednesday. Oh. Yeah. Did you get Ben Platt? We did get Ben Platt. So a friend of yours and mine, Jason Benetti, came into the city for a day because I'm going to hear about this, life. by the way, because every time his name pops up on the pod, I get a text. I mean, his <laughs> life isn't crazy enough that he's doing half the White Sox games and he's doing college football right now. So he decided, I'm going to fly into New York for a day and see Dervin Hansen before Ben Platt leaves. And then uh, our mutual agent somehow has a connection to somebody in the show and got us backstage. What? So we were in the dressing room backstage, and I took a picture of Jason with Ben Platt. That is on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, he was excited. Jason, not Ben Platt. Although I'm sure Ben was very excited as well. Big White Sox fan. Huge, yeah. Big, has a framed Minnie Minoso photo in his <laughs> dressing room. Multi-time winner of Sox math. Yeah, yeah. Ben is great at Sox math. <laughs> um, not so good at any of the other various games that they play. Kind of fails at who am I. He just keeps guessing Paul Canerco every week for some reason. <laughs> but it was great. Hamilton's amazing. Uh, have you seen it? Have you seen either of these shows? I, I have not. Uh, for Well, every time I come home, I go see a show, but uh, not those. Uh, so I've missed out there. And then I've wanted to go to Chicago to see Hamilton. Um but tickets are, they're not astronomical, but they're still like, you know, 200 bucks a seat, unless you get them like three months in advance, and then they're like $60 in the balcony, which makes sense, but I just, I don't plan that far enough in advance, right. so, uh, like, I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow, let well, in January. I had to plan this far in advance to see Hamilton. I bought tickets for Hamilton the day after the presidential election in 2016. Was there a because, reason? Like, you well, were feeling I patriotic? Just, <laughs> no, I there there were two reasons. One is that the day after the election, I think it's safe to say I live in Brooklyn, uh, the feeling of, of general malaise was in the air. And the second reason was that I wanted to go see Hamilton and a new block of Hamilton tickets happened to go on sale that day. Oh, there you go. So I thought, what the heck? Why don't I shell out 400 bucks <laughs> and bought two tickets? And then, amusingly enough, a few months uh, a few months ago, Paul McCartney announced a tour with a whole bunch of shows in the Tri-State area, and I thought, well, I could do one of these Tuesday shows at Barclays Center, which is down the road from me in Brooklyn, and I bought tickets for Tuesday, September 19th, not realizing <laughs> at the time... You already had Hamilton Tuesday, tickets. September 19th, I already had Hamilton tickets. So I managed to, a couple of weeks before the show, sell the McCartney tickets, to uh to my aunt and uncle and then i bought mccartney tickets for a show in new jersey the week before hamilton uh and i bought the tickets the day of and we somehow paid 90 bucks and we're on the floor for mccartney so yeah i've lived a charmed life over the past couple of weeks that's something <laughs> it's something yeah i mean it creatively and artistically i i feel rejuvenated uh financially <laughs> I'm, I may have some issues that I'm not addressing right now. Well, paying and, for McCartney and Hamilton tickets and, and, and dog Dear food. Hansen. And dog food. 
And dog food, yes, more so than anything, dog food. Well, For and, some reason, and dog, because those aren't cheap. Yeah, well, I just got a dog, and my girlfriend decided that we needed, I think, seven different types of treats. Well, obviously, they know the difference. It, right, <laughs> yes, they're quite perceptive. I tried to feed him the other day, and he said, no, excuse me, <laughs> I'd rather have the salmon-smoked ones, please. <laughs> I mean, essentially, that's what winds up happening. Like, yeah. Why has he not eaten those six? You know, one of them's for when we want to go to bed, one's for when we're training, one's for when we're out on walks. One of them is a treat that apparently cleans his teeth, which I think they should make for humans. That'd be huge. Yeah, and I'm not sure about the other three. I don't think we've used those yet. That's actually, that seems like a Shark Tank space that's been untapped. Cleaning treats for humans. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's a winning proposal. I feel like Mr. Wonderful get- wouldn't be all in on that but no no maybe you get cuban to invest in 10 percent of the company though <laughs> for a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> exactly i'm looking for a 10 percent stake a hundred thousand dollar human cleaning treat business <laughs> it wouldn't be the weirdest idea that i've ever seen on shark tank though. no i saw a guy who had a no product he just had an idea to create a pill that would change your skin to like different colors for halloween um, so that you could be like a witch or a carrot or a smurf uh, by using excessive amounts of beta carotene, and it didn't go well. That is the start of a really bad sci-fi movie. <laughs> <laughs> I have a pill that will change your skin blue, and it definitely won't have any permanent lasting impacts. <laughs> that's, that's how the beast, I think, came to be in X-Men, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Um, on that note, uh, can we talk creativity? I, I think uh, sure. to start, um, where do you? And I guess this extends to a, to another level with with Benetti as well, uh, aforementioned. Uh, where do you guys come up with stuff that you've done on the air? Um, and I guess this is more a baseball thing, um, but you know, socks math for him, or, or you know, teammates in a hat or teammates in a glove that you guys did, and talking bobblehead videos, all that stuff. I don't really write anything down. Um, I just have a strange mind. I, you know, where does it come from is a good question. Um, I think, first of all, I, I'm just lucky in that I have a good mind. My parents are smart. I, I have a, a pretty smart family. I guess there's something genetically in there. Uh, I... I was an obsessive reader as a kid. Uh, my my parents, my mom in particular, didn't want me watching much TVs, uh, so I just became a vociferous uh, uh, reader. I just devoured. I probably read a book a day when I was growing up. I mean, I, there are untold numbers of times where I just would be late coming downstairs to dinner or late getting out of the car because I just wanted to read six more pages and whatever book I had. And uh, as, as I've gone on, I just find myself naturally interested in other things. Um, once I went to college, I started really deep diving into movies uh, and, and then television from there. Uh, in high school, I went from somebody that didn't listen to music to deep diving into all sorts of music. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll listen to 
you know, you too. And then I'll immediately turn around and listen to Chance the Rapper or Kanye West. And then I'll turn around and listen to Johnny Cash and then Blink-182. Like, I, I, I just, for whatever reason, I, I, I'm interested. I think I'm a curious person. So I'm just naturally interested in things. Um, and I, I'm interested in the creative process, too. You know, I, I saw Hamilton and then I immediately wanted to watch the Hamilton PBS documentary. And then I immediately wanted to watch uh, an interview from Lin-Manuel Miranda on CBS uh, Sunday morning. And then I wanted to listen to a podcast with the creators of Dear Evan Hansen. I, I want to know how people make things and where they get inspiration from. So I guess I'm just always thinking about that. I'm thinking about the creative process. Uh, I like knowing how people came up with song lyrics and melodies, even though I'm not particularly musically inclined. I play the piano a little bit, but that's it. Um, I like knowing how people come up with story ideas. Where do they come up with story ideas? And what are the settings in which they find their mind best works? Uh, is it early in the morning? Is it late at night? Does it help to be carrying around a, a notebook? But I, I don't write most of this stuff down. I, I think it's just an accumulation of ideas and a general thinking about the creative process and maybe I will start writing more stuff down, but for now it's just, you know, you mentioned talking bobblehead video Th that came from, I did a video two years ago with the Syracuse Chiefs, the baseball team I worked for where we had uh, a, like a garden gnome kind of bobblehead of our manager. And I think I was just watching one too many nineties, David Letterman clips on YouTube. And I got the idea, what if I interviewed the garden gnome and off camera, one of our team employees voiced over the garden gnome and people enjoyed it. And I don't know why or how that idea popped into my head. Other than that, it seems like something Letterman would have done. <laughs> and uh, I go down these Letterman late night Conan O'Brien, you know, even further back Johnny Carson rabbit holes. And, and it just popped into my head like this would be a weird, silly idea that probably 70 percent of the people wouldn't understand. The other 30 percent would think are funny. And uh, I guess I like existing in that 30 percent sweet spot. Um, How does that make you a better broadcaster or does it make you a better broadcaster? Well, I think it does. I think so much of broadcasting is essentially improv. Um, I actually took an improv class a couple of years ago and after college. Yeah, it was after college. It was in Syracuse. Um, I was up in Syracuse for most of one off season doing high school and college sports on TV there. And I had a bunch of free time and it's something that I would like to get back into. It's just a little tougher now because I don't have quite as much free time. Um, and obviously, I live in Brooklyn. If you want to do improv in the city, it, it'll cost a pretty penny. But it's something that's on the forefront of my mind. I just haven't committed yet. Um, I think it was one of the best things I've done because broadcasting is, is improvisation in a way. You can prepare. You can have information on players. But then the first play of the game, the star running back goes down. <laughs> oh, gosh, what do I do now? You know, some – wide receiver that, that was sixth on your depth chart makes a couple of 65 yard catches, or there's a lateral in the middle of a play or in baseball, a pitcher with a seven and a half ERA has a perfect game going into the eighth inning. Uh, you, you never know what's going to happen. You, you know who the players are, 
you know what the information is, but you don't know what's going to happen in a certain call. Uh, you don't know how the weather is going to impact the game. You don't know how the wind's going to impact the game. I mean, there's so many variables. And improv, in a way, is, is, is a little like that. And there's, there's less in terms of prepared material that goes into it. You have to be prepared in knowing how it works. You, know, it's, you don't go into an improv scene thinking these are the three things I want to get in. Although in a sports game, you might do that. These are the three topics we want to hit. We want to layer this guy's story. Um, but in improv, you have to know the rules, essentially. And then you can go into a scene and, and just kind of fly by the seat of your pants. I don't know what anybody's going to say next to me either. You know, I work with Jason for four years doing baseball, and you never knew what he was going to say. So you've always got to be on your toes in that scenario. The people I work with now, you know, for ESPN often you'll – meet somebody the day before a game you go out to dinner with them and then the next day you're on the air and you have to act like your best friends for two three hours uh how do you do that how do you uh, anticipate what they're going to say and there's not really a, a, a way to anticipate that maybe watch a game or two of theirs but until you're there in person you don't get it so i i just like uh the feeling of, of being able to come up with something on the fly i think everybody that's in play-by-play would benefit from improv class it i just think it makes you smarter it makes your brain work a little differently um i've never been quite as terrified as i was when we finished that uh that improv class with a student show um you the the group of us that took this class went on before one of the actual troops at the theater and we did 15 minutes of, of improv, maybe 20, and it felt like an hour. We did three games. I, there is no game I've ever done. I, you know, I've been fortunate to do games at Yankee Stadium in college and Fenway Park. The Chiefs played there and, and on ESPN. I, I've never even been a, a, a third as nervous as I was to do this improv show in front of 70 people. It was absolutely terrifying. And, uh, and it was thrilling. It was probably as rewarding as any show I've ever done, uh, even though uh, a fraction of the audience that, that I have saw it. But I recommend it to everybody. It's an amazing thing to do creatively, and it really it's a good fear to get over, too, in case I'm ever in a spot like that again. Uh, how do you get used to working with people? Now that you bring it up, do you do you watch people's games? Like, do you, what's that process like of getting to know somebody in a day? Um, I do watch games. So let's say um, working with, uh, let's say last year, I, uh, I did a game with uh, with Adrian Branch for basketball. All right, so I, you know, we have a whole master schedule um, for college basketball with ESPN. You can go into. All right, when's the last Adrian Branch game? And I'll watch 15, 20 minutes. I, I want to, I want to get an idea of of how people approach calling a game. Yeah, you know, not necessarily like what are they um, necessarily looking for in the players. It's more of when do they speak? Um, what are the topics that seem to excite them? You know, do they take it to break? Do they? Take the game out of break. Uh, how often do they speak? So I want to have at least general idea. And, and you know, I worked with Al Groh last year. 
who knows more football than anybody I think I've met. But the question was, how do you get Al to do that within 20 or 30 seconds in between plays? And then the next week I did a game with Clint Sterner, who played quarterback at Arkansas and was pretty much in the studio all year. And I think maybe had done one game before that. Uh, and then basketball with Adrian Branch. I was with Sean Farnham for a game. I was with Paul Bean Cardi, who's ESPN's recruiting analyst. And there's so many different people. Everybody's such a different personality. So if I can watch a little bit, then I will do that. The other thing is I just ask questions. I don't know. I'm a curious person, as I've noted previously, yeah. and I'm inquisitive. Uh, I, I like trying to get to know people away from the sport. I, I just – that's partly, I think – uh, selfish in terms of trying to build chemistry before we get on the air. Uh, and partly it's just because I'm interested in people. I, I just generally like talking to people and like getting to know people. That's not a fabrication, but you have to fabricate it a little bit on the air when you've known somebody for maybe 14 hours before you go on and do a game so i find it's instructive to try to get people to know you and try to get to know them and try to just develop a general likability because i think if the other person likes you that subconsciously comes across on the air i think if somebody is comfortable enough to joke around with you then they'll be good whether or not they do like i you don't have to not everybody's jokey on the air not everybody's as self-deprecating as me that's okay, but if you can be off the air, if, if you have the capability to be, I just think it sounds more likable. That may be a totally cockamamie theory, um, but it is one that I've developed. I think the people that you can sit down and talk about life with off the air are the people that are better when you ask them a question about the four-two-five defensive scheme on the air. What's it like working with Benetti? In that regard, what was it like as a, uh, as a training ground for you? Yeah, yeah. I, I say I got my uh, graduate degree in broadcasting from from working with Jason. I graduated Syracuse in 2011, and I started working with the Chiefs that year. And I did four years of minor league baseball with Jason before he left and went on to ESPN. And every day is like graduate school with him um just the way his mind works yeah the thing that jason probably taught me on the year more than anything is a lot of people can go from point a to point b not everybody can go from point a to point c or from point a to point d which which he does you know identify the obvious connection and then find the not so obvious connection the other thing I learned from working with Jason is just how to handle yourself off the air. Um, when you're doing minor league baseball with someone, you are in it. I mean, it, it is, you know, the grind is the word that people use. It is every bit of that and more than people that have not worked in minor league baseball know. You're around somebody constantly you're doing 144 games with another person in 152 days for the two of us. We were rooming together in Syracuse. I just moved into the second bedroom in his apartment for the summers. And then we rooming together on the road. You know, a lot of teams, the broadcasters will 
have separate rooms, but with Syracuse, they always had the broadcasters room together. So you're spending most every second of every day with somebody for six months to the point where, you know, that person can impact your life and the way you think more than anyone else. And I, I always say this outside of my mom and dad, I probably haven't learned as much from any individual person as Jason's because for four years for baseball season, I'm with him every day. Uh, and you see how he operates in every situation. We, you know, it was tough for the first year because I was this 21 year old kid out of college who thought he knew everything. Here I am first professional job. I'm going to be doing triple a baseball. It's great. I know what I'm doing obviously, or I wouldn't have this job. And you learn quickly that you don't know anything. You really don't have a clue what you're doing when you come out of college. Um, and, and he expected a lot of me and I was not living up to expectations. You know, I was trying to enjoy the end of college while doing this job. I was trying to show up a little bit late, cut a few more corners. And it probably took until about August that year when I realized, oh, I'm not doing this the right way. And then the last month of the season was far more fulfilling than anything that came before. Um, and we just became fast friends and he's still one of my closest friends. And, you know, the impact he had on me on the air is probably equivalent to, but maybe less than the impact off the air. Tell me about the on the air first, because I, I remember I tuned into a Chiefs game one time. I don't remember when. Um, this was several years ago, and, and I, I, I'm listening, and I'm like, wow, Jason sounds pretty good. Uh, and then Jason started talking. Uh, and I was like, oh, uh, that must be Kevin. Um, in, in terms of stylistically and kind of what he, what he taught you, and I mean, you guys do sound very similar in a lot of ways, and that's a very good thing, obviously, because you're both at a very high level. Um, what's he taught you, and, and, and how, did, how did he help mold you into what you are? You know, the weird thing is I never heard that, but probably starting in 2013 Stop and it, going really? on in 2014, I'm serious, <laughs> in 2013 and, and 14, which are the third and fourth years I work with them, like every week somebody said to me, oh, you know, I can't tell you two apart. And I just thought that's ridiculous. Of course <laughs> you can. We don't sound anything alike. But more and more people kept saying it to the degree where, uh, you know, herd mentality uh, is not always correct. But I think it was probably true in hindsight because enough people that I respect and enough people with a good ear were saying it. So a, a lot of that was just subconscious. I never went out into a show thinking I'm going to sound like Jason. I think it just happened from soaking up the things he did uh in terms of the x's and o's and the individual things that he taught me on the air hmm. well i'd say the first is is just don't be afraid to to be smart and to sound smart um i think there can be a natural inclination to try to do an all-encompassing show and do a broadcast that the lowest common denominator a viewer can understand and i don't say that to disparage viewers but people do baseball games and they say here's such and such player with a 260 average 13 home runs and 70 rbis and we're smart enough now as baseball fans to know that tells you nothing about that player 
Um, we don't know how much he gets on base. We don't know how many doubles he's hit. We don't know what his speed is. We don't know what kind of a fielder he is. We don't know how he is against lefties and against righties. I mean, we're so much smarter now. And yet if you listen to baseball broadcasts, and if you listen to a lot of major league broadcasts, a lot of people that I think are really good, have good voices, or know the game well, will say, here's this hitter, 260, 13 homers, 70 RBIs. And the thing that Jason taught me in that respect is you don't have to do that. Uh, you don't have to pander to everyone. You know, there are going to be things that you say in the air if you're doing a smart show that not everyone's going to understand. You're going to say something that is going to fly over the head of half the audience. And that half the audience is going to say, oh, all right, and then move on. Uh, if, if you do the rest of the game well, then they'll say, oh, I didn't get that. And then it'll evaporate and, and they'll just keep on rolling with you. And the half of the audience that does get it is going to feel a little bit smarter and say, oh, I learned something there. And, and you shouldn't be afraid to alienate the other half of the audience with something that you think is educational or informative or funny, even if it doesn't hit everyone. Uh, it, just technically, boy, I, I learned a lot about my voice from him. If you went back and listened to my work from six years ago, I'm 21 going on 14. Now I have this heinous Long Island accent um, where I'm hitting certain sounds. You know, I'm saying Alaska instead of Alaska. I'm saying Maldonado instead of Maldonado. I'm saying bowl. I'm drawing out the W-L in, in that word. And he kind of beat it out of me. You know, uh, it was a lot of just reading out loud to myself off the air, reading a paragraph in a book at a very low tone, reading at a very high tone, um, come back on the air for a half inning and have a higher pitch, come back with a lower pitch and see if you start at a sort of a lower floor vocally where you can go from there. I mean, that's as much as anything, as much as we in play by play love to talk about how to call a game and what elements to get in and how to approach a certain big call and with words. I mean, so much of it is voice. We, we know that there, there are people that are very smart and very capable and very talented that don't have quite the power in their voice and have probably slipped a little bit in their career because of it. And there are people that have outstanding voices that often get by because of a great natural voice. And while we can scream and shout and say that's unfair, you know, the truth is that's a good portion of what people are listening for. People are listening for the voice, and I didn't have that. And to whatever extent I do now, and I'm still working on it, um, it's because of the way that I work with him. And he heard, I don't know how he did, but he heard, here's somebody that could do this that has the potential to be strong vocally and, and hasn't accessed it now. Okay. How do we get them to access it? And that as much as anything has helped my career. Uh, what was that? I mean, did you, did you get coaching during that or was it just kind of working it out on your own or, I mean, like Jason is going to laugh at this conversation between you and I based on the conversations that he and I have had <laughs> uh, in that regard. Um, but take me through that process. Yeah, it was just working it out of my own. Um, I've thought about it before. I've thought about getting a, a vocal coach. 
you know, I've thought, you know, I wonder what, what working with a vocal coach would be like. I, I'm curious, too, as to – I haven't done this. I don't know anybody that has, but I'm curious as to what would happen if somebody doing play-by-play worked with uh, specifically a singing coach. I wonder if those are different vocal muscles or if, if there are techniques that could help you there. Goodness knows I can't sing, but – I oh, it's wonder. it's very embarrassing. I've I've I've, yeah. I've gone that route, and it's very weird yeah. in a music school when people can walk past the door and you're like, "Stop it! I'm not a music student." Oh, you've done that. You've taken you've tried singing lessons to see I, how it I works? have. It was actually pretty helpful. Interesting. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, it, it was pretty helpful. And Jason's now gonna laugh at this further. Um, <laughs> no, I love this. I'm I'm cu- I'm really curious about this because this is another one of those projects that's <laughs> that's on the front burner of my brain that I I think I might want to do someday. Did you feel like it? I mean, are there certain exercises that you'll still use on the air that you got from the singing coach? Yeah, no, 100%. Um, and it was, it, for me, it was more like I hated the idea of of like physically changing how I talked in, in a certain degree because I, I was fighting the battle between like being who I am and, and like, you know, pretending that I sounded a different way and, and kind of going on that alteration, if that makes any sense at all. Um Absolutely. So, like, I I went down this route with a, a singing coach at Indiana Wesleyan. It's a college north of here, um, and like we did a lot of singing exercises and vocal warm ups and vocal eases and all of that stuff. And um, it it just came down to like breathing differently. And uh, I mean, I talked nasally and you know in the front of my nose and all of that, and and how to how to talk from the back of your neck a little bit so that you know. It, you you have a little bit more resonance and and I think yeah it helped and it was funny I remember like uh, doing a basketball game at San Diego State like three years ago and this was in the midst of when I was still like really heavily into all this stuff I walked outside the arena and I'm like standing in the parking lot because I wanted to go somewhere where nobody could hear me and I'm like doing these vocal warm ups as like occasionally somebody would walk by me to like go into the game and it was odd. But there was no like I wasn't going to do it in the media room, uh, so so uh, yeah. No, Some that's... sports writer trying to eat his chili, and, <laughs> and there's Joel just breathing oddly in the corner. <laughs> yeah, um, so so that that that's all uh, that's all definitely happened. But uh, yeah, that that was kind of the route that that I went, and I don't know if they're ultimately the same thing. Um, but yeah, I don't know either. I I I think some of that stuff I've probably just stumbled onto by accident um but it's it's been you know jason my, my first year in minor league baseball sort of pushed me a certain way and then it's just basically been me doing it self-taught after that um reading like you said you read like out loud yeah. to do stuff yeah i would just pick up a random book um, and, and read it one paragraph one way and then read another paragraph another way. Um, mostly tone and, and trying to gain vocal resonance, you know, do this one in a high pitch, do this one in a low pitch, but sometimes read this paragraph quickly and then take a paragraph and just draw out the words a little more slowly. And I still hear that when I'm watching back or listening back to my work. I think that's the number one thing that I self-critique is, all right, you're going a little bit too quick. 
and, and right now it's about 10 to 15 percent too quick. And I think that's because I've naturally been a fast talker in my life off the year, which is something I'm trying to break out of. Yeah, me too. Uh, and that I think is probably if I can psychoanalyze myself uh, from growing up in a, a family a on Long Island and B where I'm, my mom is one of eight and I'm one of 25 first cousins and it's just a big Irish Catholic family and you get together every week or other week because somebody has a birthday or somebody's getting married or somebody's graduating high school and you've got to be on your toes because if you <laughs> if you hesitate, someone's going to jump into the conversation <laughs> and you're not going to get a word in edgewise. Uh, and then friends of mine on Long Island, just I, I go home now and I try to have a conversation with them and I'll be a little more deliberate. And it's like, bang, you can't get a word in 20 minute monologue from somebody, which is just sort of the way that, that people on Long Island operate. Sometimes uh, they like to talk and they like to talk quickly. And, and I did, too. So I find myself self-restraining off the air. But sometimes that slips in and I start going a little bit too quickly on the air. That's probably the thing I'm still the most self-critical of, but you know, I don't know. I did that for 20 some odd years of my life. It, it's hard to fully break out of it every now and then it's going to slip in more than the accent. Thankfully, the accent is pretty much gone on the air. It's rare where I'll say something and I think, Oh gosh, I'm from the South shore of long Island, but it's the, the speed at which I talk now, which I'm, I'm constantly uh, fighting a battle with myself over. Let's talk about uh, speed of the business, if we can, if I can, if I can flip courses a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me about climbing the ladder at ESPN and uh, fairly quickly, and uh, what it's been like for you. Uh, I guess since when was your first one? Fifteen was when you kind of started. Yeah, 2015. I started doing some ESPN three work, and then I broke in a little bit randomly with college hockey. So you, uh, I was going to say like. Did, uh, Maybe this is just me, but like I never knew you to be a huge hockey person. Am I wrong on that? <laughs> no, I, I really wasn't. Um, I'm a fan of the sport, but you know, not to the degree. Growing up, I was more of a fan of football, basketball, and baseball because my dad is a big fan of football, uh, basketball, and baseball. And, and more so football and baseball. Basketball, I had to get a little bit more organically on my own. I played the sport, um, so that helped. I never played hockey. So, and and I didn't follow it quite as closely as the other three and the opportunities for hockey are a little more limited. I started doing hockey when I was out of college doing games for time Warner up in Syracuse, which broadcasts Colgate hockey games, um, time Warner in Albany. I did a few games for RPI, I uh, had a couple of, of games there. I can't think of the other one right now. I did an RPI game. I did a Cornell game against somebody too, I guess. Um, state high school hockey championship. So just a handful of hockey games every year. So fast forward, and, and, and I should say I did some high school hockey for MSG Varsity on Long Island as well. So fast forward to 2015. Um, the Chiefs are in – actually, the Chiefs were in Durham – we had already been to Charlotte and for whatever reason, I hadn't made it out to the ESPN Charlotte offices. So I thought I'm in North Carolina. I might as well do this. So I rented a car in Durham, drove to Charlotte, met with John Basalo, who's one of the coordinating producers at ESPN and uh, 
John and I sat down and he asked me, all right, what have you done? And I just started listing out things I'd done. I said, all right, I've done baseball. I've done football. I've done basketball. I've done hockey. And something clicked and he stopped and he said, you know, we don't have that many people that have done hockey. And I, and I hadn't done a ton of it. I'd done a handful of things every year. I thought I was getting better at it. I thought it fit me well. I've also done, done boggle and field hockey and <laughs> tiddlywinks. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you should really hear my tiddlywinks. Uh, not to <laughs> not to prop myself up, but but I am good. You know, I think in the world of tiddlywinks, I think I'm at least among the top three. So yeah, it's Al Michaels, uh, Jim Nance. And you. Jim Nance, Beth Mullins is really good at tiddlywinks. You know, <laughs> Adam Amin has a lot on his plate. He did a tiddlywinks match last week on, on ESPN 8. I mean, you should check that out too. And then it's me. Um, so JV said, you know, I've not many people that do hockey. You know, maybe we can work you in if you'd be interested. I said, yeah, of course. So we had a good conversation. Um, I end up getting booked to do an ESPN three football game at uh, Louisiana Lafayette, which was rebranding itself to just go by Louisiana, Lafayette. but we were or still Louisiana, that's Louisiana right. Lafayette. Yeah. And I think now they've won. I think now they're just Louisiana on our family networks. If I'm not mistaken, they are. might be, no, they are. I'm right. Okay. That's good. Um, so something I've said on this podcast is true. <laughs> and, I sent JV a stretch in the game and I just said, Hey, if you wouldn't mind watching this, I did my first ESPN three football game. And, and he responded, uh, great. Do you want to do these two ESPNU hockey games at Penn state? Yeah, sure. Of course. You know, and and at this point, I'm just expecting that maybe after a couple of months, he'll get back to me. He's busy. Maybe it'll take a a little bit of time before he watches the football game. He immediately comes back and says, do you want to do these hockey games? All right, sure. To this day, I'm not sure how much of the football tape he watched, but he had the idea to get me on hockey. So I hope it's none run... because the story would just be great in 20 years. I hope it's none too. And yeah. you know what? I bet it probably is. <laughs> <laughs> he probably just saw, oh, right. Here's the email from this kid that said he does hockey. So I was put out a couple of Penn State games on ESPNU. Uh, those went well. ESPN the last couple of years has only done six Big Ten hockey games during the regular season in 2015-16. John Bouchergross did two, Clay Matvick did two, and I did two completely randomly. <laughs> so when the hockey tournament comes around, ESPN has all the rights. And there are four game sites. So John Bouchergross gets a game site. Clay Matvick gets a game site. Um, Alan Beswick got a game site who was just around doing a whole bunch of different sports. And then, because I had done hockey that year, I got a game site and worked with Billy Jaffe, who is an absolute genius. Uh, and we did the Albany Regional, and it went well. And then, really spurred on by that tape, last year, again, I met with a couple of, of the right people and uh, ended up doing somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 35 events for ESPN. And part of it, again, was just being in the right place at the right time. The Chiefs were in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And Pawtucket's an hour and a half, hour and 40 from Bristol. So we had a night game, and I had my car, and I emailed a couple of people at ESPN and, and said, hey, we're going to be in town. I'm going to be you know, essentially just around the corner, relatively speaking, could I come in and, and 
pick your brain 15 minutes. So I met with Ed Placey, um, a couple of others, and Ed is the head of uh, college football programming, essentially, at ESPN. And I sat down with Ed, and I thought it would be maybe a 15-minute conversation. It probably ended up being closer to an hour. Ed has had an amazing career and is responsible for a whole bunch of technical things on the screen and the number of timeouts on the bug and, and just the way the score bug has changed. And uh, I really just sat there and, and peppered Ed with questions for the better part of an hour. And that was honestly it. And it was, again, partially self-motivated and trying to get to know somebody, but I was just genuinely interested in learning. I, I like being someone who can kind of remove myself from the craft of putting a game together and just being an interested viewer at how it's done while also being in it. So I wanted to know and Ed and I had a good conversation. And a week later, I got a call from somebody at ESPN saying, we'd like you to do the uh, high school football package this year. And that came a little bit out of nowhere. But that spurred me on. And I had some more work after that. And then that uh, morphed into this year where I'm doing the high school package. And then I'm going to do some more things. And I'm now full time with the company. So I left the Chiefs at the end of the year. But it really was just a couple of chance conversations and me mentioning that I liked hockey that got me the first break. And then I, I think Ed and uh, Patrick Donner at ESPN probably had somebody else in mind for the high school package. And, and I just happened to catch them at the right time when they were about to schedule games. And we happened to have some good conversations and thankfully they uh, were crazy enough to say, oh, let's, let's throw Kevin into the mix here. What a, that's all kind of nuts when you think about it. Uh, right place, right time, right questions. Um, yeah, and I mean, and the, and the fact that I'm, or I was, working for a minor league team that brought me with within an hour and a half of Bristol. Yeah. And uh, and brought me, you know, I was, again, I went from Durham in 2015 and then subsequent years, whenever the Chiefs have gone to Charlotte, I'll just stop by the offices because they're 15 minutes from the hotel in Charlotte. So if I was working on the Pacific Coast League, or if I was working in the Southern League or, you know, the Texas League, I mean, I never would have had that chance. No, you'd be with the Pac-12 Network right now, yeah. Right, <laughs> which, you know, maybe I should have been doing that <laughs> and I'd be calling you from San Diego. But it just – it was lucky. Um, it's lucky that I was in that league and I was that close and those people were in the office the days I was there, you know, I could have been there on a, on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday when we would have traveled in on Friday or something like that. It, it just worked out. Um, the, I think the Pawtucket visit last year was like right at the end of June. Uh, and that's right about when the college football schedule gets put together. So, yeah, I um, certainly as, as everybody I think in this business is fortunate to at some point have met the right people and said the right things at the right time i you know for all of us it comes with with a little bit of luck in some way and i guess that's the 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 good luck portion of it for me the other half of the good luck portion being i didn't graduate college early i couldn't have worked for a full season minor league team unless they were in the city where i was and happened to have an opening that year and the syracuse chiefs had an opening that year what's it like calling games for espn too um, from and this is for, ES, from, for ESPN two or for ESPN uh, T O O. Because tonight we are on ESPN two. Denton and Ryan High School. What's the difference between two and the regular? No, um, just I mean, we started talking about this right off the top before we started rolling. 
Um, well, actually, after we started rolling, but I'll cut it out. Uh, the 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 production <laughs> magic of podcast, right? Um, the the production side of things. Um, what's what's a game like for you in terms of um, how you prep, how they prep, how you collaboratively prep, and then how things unfold as a game goes? Um, mm-hmm. I know there's a lot to bite off there, but just kind of give me the if you can give me the behind the scenes cross section of what it looks like. Yeah, I just show up with a roster card and just wing it. And there are some that probably do quite quite well. <laughs> you're right. You're right. And 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 those people have gifts that I would like. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess. Well, well, I'll give you the football answer because I'm in the midst of it right now. And and football is definitely the most pregame prep heavy sport. I mean, basketball, you you prepare things obviously, but there's only so much you can do in game. You, there's so much action where you kind of just roll the ball out and go. Um. Hockey is fairly in-depth too, but at the same time, it's hard to layer a player's story during a hockey game. You know, this. let's say this player has a has particularly strong check and then uh, the puck is knocked out of play. Okay, in the 20 seconds before the face-off, we can cram in some stuff about this guy. But once play starts, you really have to be on the puck. Football is, you know, maybe in terms of the sports that I personally enjoy – I'd probably say basketball first. I, I like the flow and, and the rhythm of the game. I would probably say baseball a close second and then football a close third. But the collaborative nature of doing one of these broadcasts is as fun as anything. So football, um, I probably don't prepare that much differently than anybody else. You know, we have our boards. By the way, um, um, I, I saw you tweeted a picture of one of your boards. It looks very familiar. I'm just saying. <laughs> Yeah, uh, which one was that? What did I What did I tweet out? And it was a high school football. It looked like okay, and and I I, I, I recognize the template. <laughs> I have tweaked the template that you and I and many uh, have used from WAR FM at Syracuse University, but I have not overhauled it. And every year I'm uh, I, I'm ready to overhaul it, and then life gets in the way. Um, and this was going to be the summer where I was going to overhaul it because you haven't even I changed the, the font, by the way. Well, it's the, I left the Chiefs a month early this year and I was like, all right, I'm really going to now dig into overhauling these football charts. Yeah, Cooper Black and is then, unique. It's, it's, it's unique. Yeah, yeah Cooper Black. I, I don't know why I chose it. 32 numbers. I, I, I don't know why I did it that way, but but it, that's what the font is. Um, I don't know either, but <laughs> it's it's still there. I'm looking at a Cooper Black chart right now. Uh, I've changed the other fonts, but uh, well, Cooper Black. But I, but I was going to overhaul it this year, and then I, and this is a whole different road. I don't have to go down. But I, I called into a, a last minute week of doing Nationals baseball, and then uh, I was home for a few days, and then I was at a bachelor bachelor party, and then I, my girlfriend and I went on a two week West Coast vacation. And it never happened. So my charts are basically the same. <laughs> um, okay. So anyway, <laughs> I wouldn't. I, yeah, I wouldn't say my prep is is drastically different from anyone. Um, the the actual doing of the game for high school football is is probably a lot different than most college games. You know, you have your um, coach calls during the week on usually Tuesday for a Friday game, and you talk to both head coaches. Um, the for any college game I've done. It's a little bit less when with the coaches, it's a little bit less, you know, going through the roster of, and it's more big picture thing because you know, everybody is, and there's information in all these guys for a high school game. 
you know, we're doing Denton High School and Ryan High School the day we're recording this in Denton, Texas. Now, how many players, Dolgada, can you name on Denton or Ryan High Schools in Texas? Um, well, Denton is where the Rocky Horror Show took place, so uh, Brad. Is that really where the Rocky Horror Show took place? I don't know if it's Denton, Texas, but it is Denton. I don't think it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, None. None. Yeah, so there is no Brad on the roster. But your challenge so, is now to drop in some sort of... It's, yeah. That's right. And now I'm going to be furiously Googling Rocky Hart <laughs> quotes once we get off the phone. So nobody knows who these guys are. Uh, Ryan has a quarterback who is an Oklahoma State commit and a wide receiver who's a Texas Tech commit. And uh, that's really the main draw in this game. So we become a little bit of a studio show. We have to talk big picture recruiting in the nation. We will talk state of Texas recruiting. So in our production meeting today, we're talking about what are Texas, uh, Texas Tech, A&M, TCU, Baylor, what are they doing on the recruiting trail? All right, tonight we're going to be really previewing this weekend of college football games. So we are going to be previewing Miami Duke and USC Washington State tomorrow and then Clemson, Virginia Tech Saturday. So off of those promos, we'll probably talk those schools' recruiting classes because that's something that we can do differently than other college games. We'll talk about why Clemson has had success in recruiting the last few years. We'll talk about uh, the top quarterback in the country who we had on our airwaves the opening week who is a Clemson commit. So I have to know about Billy Ryan's players. I have to know about Denton High School's players. I have to know something about – uh, Denton, Texas as an area because not a lot of people know about some of these high school towns we go to. And I have to know how Spencer Sanders, the Ryan quarterback, is going to fit into Oklahoma State. I have to know his backstory, but I have to know Oklahoma State's quarterback depth chart. I have to know how his system or how he fits their system. Uh, I have to know how Gabe Douglas, this wide receiver, fits into Texas Tech's system. It probably helps to know a little bit about Oklahoma State and Texas Tech's games this weekend, and they happen to be playing each other. Uh, I have to know about the state of Texas and the big picture recruiting there. Has the talent gotten better? Why are certain schools recruiting well in Texas? I have to know about Clemson recruiting and Virginia Tech recruiting because we're going to hit them. So high school football is is a lot more all-encompassing. The charts in terms of individual player info are, are dramatically thinner than the college game, but the big picture topics we have to know are a lot bigger. So we approach the show a little bit differently in that way. We're not going to be the show that on a four yard run always tells you the left guard pulled. We're going to be a show that on a four yard run is going to tell you here's the left guard pulling and and it's not why he pulled, but Hey, what are this left guard's strengths and weaknesses? He's a, a commit to Vanderbilt. He's a Kentucky commit. He's a Texas commit. How does he fit in there? Uh, what can he do to build up bulk at the next level? So a high school football game is a little bit of a different beast in that respect and that we, we've got to be prepared for a whole bunch of different variations, uh, not only on our game, but on how these players could fit into college at the next level. So it is a much different type of challenge. And I had no idea what it was like before getting into it last year. But it's great because it keeps me – thinking about college football even though i'm not doing it for the first 10 weeks or so of the year i have to stay on my toes and i have to listen to college football podcasts and watch games and watch shows and and just know the big picture because we are 
usually a Thursday or Friday show, and we're as much an appetizer for the big games as we are uh, our own thing. How much different is that from, and obviously the the approach is different because the audience is different, but how much different would that be from a production standpoint from what you did for like a MSG Varsity or a Time Warner Cable? Right. Uh, it, it is a huge overhaul in, in terms of, I mean, for MSG Varsity, that was, um, and I think it, it, now it's News 12 Varsity. It's different life. I've moved it away. Is, uh, I'm, I'm out of touch with the yeah. East Coast. It is. I'm, I'm, I'm on the East Coast, and I'm partly out of touch with the East Coast. <laughs> it, it's an online streaming channel to high school sports in the tri-state area, New York, Long Island, uh, I think New Jersey, Connecticut to an extent. Um, most of the MSG Varsity games that I did were me, a camera person, and that's it. Uh-oh. We'd bring a camera. Uh, the camera person would be known as the game producer, which is a really fancy way of <laughs> saying this person that shoots the game. All right, so I make my charts. Um, you get there. You go to the back of the bleachers usually. Uh, the very good game producers would find a table and uh, you know string their, get there early and string their XLR cables from the top of the bleachers down to the table because the camera's up at the top of the bleachers and you want to tape down the wires so you can put the table courtside um, and you'd shoot the open maybe 30 minutes before the game. You go down on the field and shoot a pre-taped open with me and the camera person. All right, then let's go back up to the top. I'm sitting next to the camera person. I don't have an analyst. Uh, I'm doing the game sort of TV style, but sort of radio style because all the graphics are going to be added in post-production. And, you know, have fun. That's it. And and sometimes you would, because you're responsible for all your own calls at that point, sometimes you'd call the school a bunch of times and, and the coach just wouldn't call you back. And you'd show up at the game and you'd show up early and try to sit down with the coach two, two and a half hours beforehand and say, tell me about your team because I don't know anything about them. So uh, to go from that to Time Warner was a nice jump up. Time Warner maybe is about a 15-person show most of the time maybe 20, 25, 30 before they made uh, some cutbacks. And, hey, you have an audio engineer in the truck. You've got an analyst. You might have a sideline reporter. You have a producer in your headset. You have four cameras. Um, and the capabilities are somewhat limited in terms of graphics. For a Time Warner show, you're not sitting down and having a production meeting the night before. All right, you'll talk to the coaches during the week you and the producer and the analyst, and then you show up two hours before the game and, and you do the game. This is obviously a different piece. And I'm sure, I, I know, in fact, other guests have, have hit on this, but you know, you, you have a call Monday with the producer and the director and the analyst and the AP and the AD and the graphics person, and you talk about last week's game and the themes you want to hit during this game. You're talking to the coaches the next day. You're emailing ideas back and forth during the week. Uh, and sometimes the producer comes up with a brilliant idea, like last week, where one of the teams had a high school uh, a high school football player who ran the sixth fastest 100-meter dash in boys' high school history. And our producer got the idea, why don't we have Kevin race this uh, this guy? <laughs> I'm sure that went well. And we ran, we ran a 40-yard dash, and it did not go well for me. Uh, I ran a 5-5. I was embarrassed by it. That's not he bad, honestly. Four- well, he ran a four seven, and he said he was running at three quarter speed. 
So we, uh, we, we got that idea. We, we made it happen the day of the game at two o'clock for seven o'clock game. We got out there, raced a couple of times. And then the question was, all right, now what are we going to do with this in the show? So I wanted to play it once and then keep it in the back pocket in case there was something else that happened. And as it so happened, Anthony Schwartz, this uh, this young man, in the second half catches a ball and goes 70 yards untouched. And so I'm like, we got to show the race. <laughs> so he, here's the 70-yard play, and then you want to see his speed in the open field. Here's him coasting to a 4-7, 40-yard dash after that. So that was something that just popped up during the week. Um, the school was cool with it. And then on game day, we had to figure out where's the best spot for it. And we ran it a couple of times, and it – Totally worked. I never could have done that with MSG. You never could have done that with Time Warner. I've always tried to prep individually the same, just because that's the way I'm wired. But the benefit of having other people that prep the same is just immeasurable. And to go from doing those shows to doing these, uh, I, I think I have a really good appreciation for the absolute bare bones. And now I just feel like in a good way overwhelmed every week. You know, not overwhelmed to the degree where it hurts me. I'm just so happy that we have all these resources on a game, extra cameras and extra people working in the truck and people that get information that you had to get yourself on a high school game. Uh, it's awesome because again, I, I like being a fan of the craft and not just somebody in it. And it's really fun to watch uh, all the wheels kind of roll into place. Uh, I think we're, we're we're pushing the bounds for like longest pod ever, um, but I, do, I, I, well, I I don't mean it in a bad way because this has been good. Well, 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 you well Amin had a two parter, didn't he? That's true. Um, somebody else. Oh, Pat Keenis had a two parter also. Um, oh, Patrick Keenis, yeah, yeah, I know Pat. Um, there's some international league pride there. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Only international league broadcasters and Adam Mean <laughs> get two parters. Yeah, get the long podcast. Um. Ask, I, I wanted to ask you about baseball uh, before we wrap this up a little bit, too, because um, I feel like I'd be negligent if I didn't. Um, your first major league game, who who did you work with for that game, by the way, this year? That Yeah, that was this past year. I did two games with Dave Jagler, and then I did six with Charlie Slows. So ja- so Dave was with you on radio? I didn't. Yes. Okay, I, did, he didn't shift to TV at all? So Well, he, well here's what happened. So in May... Charlie Slow's son, Alex, graduated from high school. And I filled in with Dave for two games in Pittsburgh. Then in uh, July, end of July, beginning of August, uh, Dave had to shift over late to do TV for a series. Bob Carpenter was on vacation uh, for that series, and and, uh, Dave ended up doing TV. Masson asked the Nationals radio people, hey, could Dave come do TV for this road trip? Said, sure. It was very last minute. And so I was asked to fill in for Dave on radio with Charlie. So Dave slid over to TV for three games at Miami, three games at Wrigley Field. Um, And then very quickly, uh, this all went down the night before my last game with the Chiefs. So it was Saturday night. My last game with the Chiefs is going to be on a Sunday. Um, obviously, emotional weekend. Seven years with them. People said 
things way nicer than than I, I deserve them to say. It, it was really a, a sweet final day. And, you know, I'm emotionally ready for that and to be done with baseball and have some time off. And then 9.15 on Saturday night, I get an email from Dave London at the Nats. Hey, this is last minute. You think you could fill in in Miami and Chicago <laughs> Monday through Sunday? I'm like, well, this is good timing. So, yeah, uh, I couldn't really tell anybody on Sunday that, hey, this is not the last baseball game I'm going <laughs> to do even this week. But uh, but that's how that worked out. So, so Dave which, did TV. I did radio. Which was the one where Gio almost threw the no-hitter? That was my third game. That was the first game of that trip in Miami. But I had done the two games in May, and so those are my first two major league games. So, yeah, my third big league game, Gio took a no-hitter into the ninth in Miami uh, on Jose Fernandez's birthday with Jose's family in attendance. And, yeah, I'm pitching myself the whole time, thinking, like, I can't believe I'm here. Good Lord, don't screw this up. Uh, Yeah, no kidding. I had the third, fourth, and the seventh inning, so it wasn't like, you know, in the third and the fourth, you're not really thinking it. But um, in the seventh, you're like... In the seventh, you're thinking, oh, God, <laughs> yeah, this this really might happen. Um, but I I, I think in, in hindsight, uh, looking back on it, I, I was calmer than I uh, probably should have been. I really wasn't thinking, uh, oh, goodness, screw it up. I was I, I was just having fun. Honestly, it was just a fun ride. I probably was still pitching myself. I can't believe I'm here. What was your first? I one? thought I was done with baseball for the year. I'm what, just happy to be here. What was your first one like? Um, it was uh, also calmer than I expected. I, I I've had some people tell me that when they went up to the big leagues, like they really had butterflies and you know had trouble. It's like sleeping and those sorts of things. And, and, and I, I get that. And so I found out in January I was doing the games and kept it under my hat until May. And that whole time, the whole three months in between, I said to myself, well, you know what? You're going to be a bundle of nerves and you're going to be anxious when you get on the air and that's fine. And I think I, I actually reverse jinx myself. I, I was so convinced that I would be nervous and I would be anxious because it would be my first big league game. I was so convinced by it uh, that I ended up not being. The one butterfly-inducing moment was walking into the press box and walking into the booth at PNC and seeing the skyline of Pittsburgh and the bridges and the overview of the field and thinking, oh, this this is not Rochester. <laughs> this isn't Scranton. Um, but... Dave is so good, and I know he was on the podcast a few weeks ago, and, and he's such a professional, and he's so well-prepared, and he was the absolute perfect guy for me to be with because he just put me at ease right away. We recorded a couple of pregame segments um, that were pre-taped before the game, which was good that my first uh, on-air experience with the Nationals was not live. Got those out of the way. Once the game started, it was just doing baseball with a few more people in the stadium. I know that sounds a little crazy and, and I'm a little surprised that it was that way because I was so psyched up uh, that it wouldn't be that way. But I, it was the combination I think of, of over doing it in my mind beforehand and then being with Dave where the game started and I said, all right, this is fine. This is baseball. Last thing. Um, your Twitter says that you're a former cabana boy. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate? 
Of course it's accurate. Why would I lie in my Twitter bio? I don't know. I Who mean, am I? <laughs> uh, what, do you, what do you think of me, Joe? I, where, where would this have been? Yeah, so uh, my first job was to work at Sun and Surf Beach Club in Atlantic Beach, New York, on Long Island. And if you go down to Long Beach and you make a left, you go to Point Lookout until you can't go any further. And if you go to, uh, to the right, and then you go to Atlantic Beach until you can't go any further. Um, I had a couple of people I knew, a cousin, uh, a friend that worked at the beach club. I was in high school. I needed something to do. So I worked there for five years in summers in high school and college. You start out working as a runner. You sit up at the front of the club. People come up with food, drinks, beach chairs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. They need to bring it to their lockers or cabanas. You put it on a dolly. It's sort of like Tetris. You stack everything so you can get it all to fit. And then you wheel these awfully squeaky, um, poorly painted, chipping away blue carts through the occasionally uneven wooden bumps in the club. You wheel into their cabanas or their lockers, you unpack, you get maybe a $3 tip and you do that for a year. And then the second year you get to actually work as a relief cabana boy. And you go to a row of cabanas, 20, 26 or so, and you get there early, you open them up in the morning, you put out the chair cushions, you put out the flags, you fill their water buckets. The big thing is you take their chairs and their umbrellas and tables down to the beach. At the end of the day, you bring a cart and you lug everything back up. You get tipped at the end of the week. By the third year, you become a full-time cabana boy. You have your own row of cabanas. You build relationships with these people. Um, you, you make pretty good money for being in high school. You know, sometimes people will tip you 20 bucks a week, and sometimes they'll tip you 100 bucks a week. Um, it, was a, a, it was an amazing summer job. I complained about it at times during the job because you'd be working from like 8 a.m. to 7 or 8 p.m. on busy weekends. But looking back on it, I was at the beach five days a week. Uh, it was awesome. So I was a five-year cabana boy, and I just felt that that was appropriate enough to, to put on my Twitter. Because, you know, what am I going to put? Likes music, broadcaster. Like, yeah, okay, everybody likes music. You know, I mean, not everybody was a former cabana boy. I think that sets me apart in life. Well, I, I just think it, it, it puts you in a certain class of people when you can say former cabana boy. Like, people just assume yeah, you have abs. Well, not, not <laughs> in the class of people that own the cabanas. I'm not in their class. <laughs> Fair. I'm a measly peon. I just um, I feel like you're going to wind up as like an extra now in some sort of Russell Brand movie as like a cabana boy. You've got that I would experience. Sign up for that tomorrow. <laughs> I where where the 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 spiritual sequel to uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall what was that Get Him to the Greek? Yeah, make him yes. a Get Him to the Greek 2 and now Russell Brand's character uh, owns a cabana. Yeah, I'm in. I'm game. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Kevin, how do people find you? Um, I'd rather they didn't, but if you must, uh, <laughs> um, my address in Brooklyn. No. Um, <laughs> if you're wandering around the Greenwood Cemetery, I should just put. I should just put in a slope. I should just put in like a beep there to make it sound like you actually gave it out. I should. Yeah. yeah. Or you should. Yeah. yeah. Um, Let's see. On Twitter, I'm at Kevin N. Brown. 
Uh, no, my parents didn't get wonky and spell my name K-E-V-I-N-N. Yes, there are too many other Kevin Browns. My middle initial is N. In fact, my middle name is Noble, which yes. is my mom's maiden name, which is always fun to explain to people that I'm Kevin Noble Brown and not because I'm trying to sound arrogant. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm on Instagram at, I think uh, it's Noble Kevin. Mm. Again, not arrogant, family name. I'm on Snapchat, but I have no idea what my Snapchat handle is. Nah, nobody does. So, oh, you know what? It's Brown Noble Kevin. Yeah, nah. so it's reverse. You're very yeah, creative. Brown Noble Kevin on Snapchat. And uh, how else can you find me? Yeah, I don't know. Wander around Brooklyn. Uh, if you're ever in Jalapeno King or Luigi's Pizza in Brooklyn, you might very well see me there. There you go. That's a free plug. They didn't even pay for that. That's right. Yeah. Not a sponsor. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Kevin, thank you for doing this. <laughs> Listen, I, I just... Once I saw Cousins uh, do the show, I, I I knew I had to be next, and I'm glad that 38 interviews later, uh, I could follow in his <laughs> fine footsteps. <laughs> that's very that's very Iron Eagle of you too, by the way, for just doing that. That's right. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a homeless man's Iron Eagle on the air, I like to think of myself as. So, <laughs> thanks for having me. No, my pleasure. You know, I continued rolling after we finished the podcast as well, and there was one point where Kevin said, you know, this would have been a good story to include on the pod. So, uh, you know, I was recording anyway, so uh, yeah, here it is. I did. There's one MSG game we did. I showed, This was one of the rare MSG games, or I guess I should say MSG events. Right? One of the rare MSG events where I actually had an analyst was this wrestling meet. And the analyst showed up about an hour before the game. I'd been there for about an hour we were going to be set up in the back of the bleachers as per usual. And the gentleman who was my analyst, and for the life of me, I don't remember his name, so I'm not throwing him under the bus because I don't know who he was. He demanded that the producer move us down to the mat. So the producer gave him some friction. He said, this will be tough. Technically, he said, we got to be at the mat. I can't be in the back of the stands. So the producer finds a table. He... Runs the wires down. We set up the table at the mat. We're ready to shoot the stand-up. As we start to shoot the stand-up, the meet begins. The first <laughs> match takes place behind us as we're shooting the stand-up. So we have to stop because our producer, in his haste to do this, does not alert the officials that we're ready to go. So we scramble to get the second half of, of that particular match. We do the rest of the meet. We really can't hear each other that well on our headsets. And we find out the next day when our producer gets back in the studio that none of the audio is recorded. <laughs> so we had to go back into the MSG studios over the video of the match, re-record the entire broadcast, pretending not to know what has happened when we know the result of every match. So that was probably the strangest thing I've done. And, uh, Afterward, the the analyst and the producer got together. Like, oh, I'm sorry, I did this. I'm, you know, they tried to hash some stuff out, but it was very strange, and it showcased the technical lim limitations when none of the audio recorded that uh, occasionally popped up when you had a one or two person and one camera shoot. So it's nice to be at ESPN. All right, that is Kevin Brown joining us here on Play by Playcast of ESPN. Uh, you could have caught him last night, I guess, if you're listening to this on time, uh, with the, the high school game of the week down in Texas uh, that we talked about a little bit 
in this episode. But usually, if you want to catch him, uh, Friday nights, you can catch him on ESPN 2, maybe? I'm not sure exactly. I I don't even know. My ESPN channels are out of whack. I, I get ESPN, ESPN News, ESPN U, ESPN 2 in that order on my cable. So I don't know which one's which. I just scroll through them. Um, but one of those stations you can catch Kevin on every week for the high school game of the week. He gave you the, the information to, to find him on social media as well. Any variation of Kevin Noble Brown. And uh, uh, again, you can hit the podcast up on social media as always at PXPCast, or I am at Joel Godet. Do, uh, if you uh, feel so inclined, leave us a rating and or a review. Let people know that you enjoy the podcast. Help spread the word about Play by Playcast as we continue to grow this thing going forward. We're about out of time, though, because it was a long one this week, but uh, I'm glad that we, we could spend more time with uh, with Kevin and with our guests than, than me rambling to you. So until uh, next week, next Friday, here on, here on Play by Playcast, I can't even talk anymore. We are out! Thanks to Kevin Brown. Thanks to you. My name is Joel. This is The Pot. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.